Okay. Is everyone back, mostly? So if you look at this page where the, the progressive stages of insight has all 18 knowledges, and you'll notice that they are divided up into five different purifications. Remember the Vasudhi Magga was the path of purification. Uh, there's actually seven purifications. The first is the purification of virtue, and the second is the purification of mind through concentration. <laughs> uh, and so the next five purifications that happen through insight are uh, in that book, they are placed after the purification of virtue and the purification through concentration. But it's not necessary to perfect your virtue and perfect your concentration before you engage in insight. Okay. If I remember correctly, I have a handout from where there's ten stages of enlightenment. Oh, there's four stages of enlightenment. There's a, a handout that I have of yours, and it's I think it's ten. Samatha. Mm -hmm. Ten stages of samatha. Four stages of enlightenment. Uh, and then there's this eighteen knowledges on the progress of insight. Um. Were you wondering about the connection between them? Yes, like, I guess where those fall in. One of the things that people often do wonder or, or try to do is if you can take the 10 stages of samatha and somehow correlate them with the 18 insight knowledges. Uh, they, you, can't, you can't really do that directly. but. Uh, is everybody here familiar with the ten stages of samatha? No, and I don't. I don't have a slide of that right now. Let's see. That's one of the things that I need to. Okay. okay. Well, when we look at the progress of insight on this page here, and usually the way it's described. Uh, when you get to 4A, the knowledge of arising and passing away, that description corresponds to uh, stage 7 in the, in the 10 stages of Samatha. Um, so the implication, and in general this is true, that somebody who's doing insight meditation until they have reached stage six or stage seven, they're, they're not going to really be able to experience the knowledges from 4A and, and beyond. And the majority of cases. Uh, the tenth stage of insight actually corresponds to, if you look down here to uh, number uh, 11, knowledge of equanimity about formations. There's samatha and vipassana. Concentration and insight have to go together. You have to develop concentration in order to have insight. And so you can, you can find certain 
parts in the progressive stages of insight that correspond to specific uh, stages of samatha. Now, somebody who was somebody who had not yet developed samatha and decided to do insight, like these people teach <coughs> at, uh, uh, at Spirit Rock and IMS and things like that. You have to sit down, and without knowing it, you have to reach stage six or seven of samatha before you can actually start effectively doing the insight practice. And that's what people will do. They might go to retreats for years, not knowing they're mastering samatha, and then finally when they start having insight experiences that uh, fit into this description, it's because they've, they've reached stage six or stage seven of samatha. Now, if they've never done any other samatha practice, what they'll do is they'll get they'll, they'll be told to uh, basically ignore most of the important features of samatha that come up at that stage, and so they'll do their, they'll continue doing their practice in, in stages they'll be in stage six or seven of samatha as they go through all these other knowledges, and then they'll get up to eleven and they'll suddenly jump to a state that corresponds to the tenth stage of samatha. That's about the only correlation that you can make between the two. Uh, and it reflects the fact that you have to have, a, you have, to have samatha in order to have insight. Um, but the other thing I'll point out to you is that a person can achieve the insight corresponding to awakening, that's number 15, path knowledge, without having ever practiced either samatha or vipassana, never having developed either concentration uh, or insight. And that does happen occasionally by accident. Uh, pretty rare, extremely rare. I'd say it's a one in a one in a billion, or you know, some, but it does happen. Maybe, maybe it's more than that. Uh, in the 20th century, there's been maybe a couple of dozen of uh, instances of that that have been documented. And we could assume that there's a lot more. So maybe the incidence is a little higher than one in a billion, but it's not very frequent. On the other hand, somebody doing the samatha practice can start having the insights. The, the entire range of insight knowledge as it's described here can start coming sooner than stage 6 or stage 7. And so, in theory at least, somebody could achieve the insight of awakening <coughs> at any stage of samatha. But it still comes down to the fact that the more practice and skill you develop, the more likely you are to have the insights. And so, for by and large, for most of us, uh, you need a certain degree of concentration skill before you're going to have uh, certain kinds of insight. Okay? If that makes sense to you. Do yeah. the people who spontaneously achieve awakening, yeah. or, or awakening happens to them, yeah. or you know, however, however it's best to say it, do they, do they automatically have the powers of concentration that, does concentration come along with that? 
Uh, in, in a sense it does. They still have to train their mind in concentration as a training thing, but what's happened because of, you know, if they've actually achieved the first stage of awakening, uh, they have a mind that knows how to unify, and they also have a mind that is not distracted the way, I mean, an ordinary person starts out and there's a huge amount of distraction that they have to overcome. But if they were to have that, it's basically experience of nirvana and the insight that comes with that, then all those distractions would lose their power. And so they could learn to concentrate much, much more easily. Okay. With the steps and the whole kind of linearity of it, how, in your experience, is that, how flexible is that? I mean, are, do clearly people can just jump to half of knowledge, like you're saying, right? But could someone have like an experience of arising, passing away, and kind of go back to number three, and then leap forward into like the, the suffering yanas and stuff? Well, uh, it is, as, as you'll see, you see, the, there's, it, it divides into first, into three parts. So this is part one that you see on the screen. Purification of view, purification by overcoming doubt, and purification by knowledge and vision of path and not path. That takes us up to knowledge 4A, which is the knowledge of arising and passing away. And somebody can skip all of those. Because what these are, is these are where you learn and study, and what you learned and studied then guides you to recognize insight experiences and develop insight. So part one is begins with an intellectual understanding, but then you sit down and meditate, and you confirm through direct experience and meditation that these things you learned are true. But if you haven't learned them, you might not recognize them, you might not notice them, you might skip over them. As a matter of fact, as we go through these uh, today, a lot of you are going to say, wow, I, I knew that, but I didn't know that I knew it. Or, you know, or you'll say, uh, oh, I, I could have had that insight a long time ago, but I, ne I never knew what to look for. Right? But you can skip these. It's possible to skip these because they're preparing the ground. Now, the next group here, the second group, is purification by knowledge and vision of the way. And someone is going to have to, in one form or another, establish the insights that these refer to. Um, they may be, it, it may be a completely different description. Perhaps they're a Christian mystic. And um, Teresa of Avila and, or Avila, which way do you say that? Avila, okay. Teresa of Avila. I have to go there someday. <laughs> and John of the Cross described as Christian mystics going through this series of insights here. Um, so they, they may be described in many different ways other than, than the particular series that's described here. But the basic insight phenomena has to occur to prepare the mind for the third part. Now, the third part of the progress of insight is purification by knowledge and vision. 
The first there is path knowledge. That's the experience of nirvana. That's the cessation of mental formations, the cessation of craving. It's the experience of emptiness. I mean, there's a lot of different ways it's described. It can be described as as uh, uh, union with God. Uh, but that is that is the that is the insight that ultimately transforms you. That's the point at which it becomes super mundane and you're no longer like anyone else as a result of it. So even though you might you might skip the first part, one through four A. In one form or another you've got to go through four B through fourteen in order to arrive at fifteen. But could it go in different sequence between four B and fourteen um, Well Actually, if five, six, seven, and eight, for some people, can all happen mushed together, and you can really not distinguish one from the other. But, uh, but then you're going to get to nine, uh, or no, you, what is it? Oh, yeah, five through nine. Then you're going to get to ten, and ten, ten is. That's going to have to happen at that place. That's what that really kind of marks the boundary between what's gone before and the next few stages that happen afterwards. So there, there is, there is a structure to it. There is a kind of linearity. It's the linearity is the result of the way the human mind is. We have to give up certain predispositions first to make ourselves open for other things to happen. And so that's where the linearity comes from. This is perhaps an excessively linear description, but remember it's an attempt to describe in minute detail how a person might proceed through this process. Back to the division of it into three parts. This first part, the one that's up here on the screen right now, as I say, this begins with intellectual understanding, which then matures into insight through direct experience. And perhaps that's what sets the Buddhist path apart from almost every other path, is it provides you this guidance so that you can organize your, you can reorganize your worldview and your self-view in a way that makes you very susceptible and open to uh, the insights that follow. But when we get to 4B on, here it's ex direct experiences you have that lead to the insight. And when it comes to intellectual understanding, if you haven't had those insights, your intellectual understanding is going to be at very best superficial and you'll become easily you can easily become confused by the way it's described and think of it in in uh, in a mistaken way so that's that's a big division right there part 1 starts out intellectual gets confirmed through direct experience but part 2 and 3 it's the experience itself that you have inside experiences that drive the insight and it's like we were talking about last night. You have an insight. Uh, how do you describe it? 
Well, you're trying to describe it in terms of metaphors and analogy. And that's what you'll find if you go to the Visuddhimagga and look at what it says under knowledge of appearances, fearful, and so forth. You'll find tons of metaphors, analogies, stories. It's like a man were approaching a city and he saw this and that and the other thing, you know. All trying to convey the idea metaphorically because these, these are that kind of insight. We're going to we're going to provide simple descriptions that kind of cut to the quick of what these are about. And the last so so part two is purification by knowledge and vision of the way, and part three is purification by knowledge and vision. Part three, that's the super mundane part. And somebody who has arrived at fifteen spontaneously will not necessarily be able to do uh, 17 and 18. They'll have to learn. And if they don't learn, they will have reached the first stage of awakening, but they will not move beyond that. Well, unless they have some other equally, or if not more so, miraculous, uh, spontaneous, insight that brings them to the second uh, or third stage of awakening. Yeah, like I say, there's, there's documentation in the 20th century of people achieving the first stage spontaneously. My favorite is the woman that happened to while she was getting on a bus in Paris. Mm. <laughs> but I haven't really encountered anybody that seems to have gone beyond the first stage spontaneously so far. Okay, so to put this into context then, this is a description as it would apply to somebody who is systematically following the progress of insight through, through the formal and traditional kinds of training and practice experiences, okay? And so we'll keep in mind that uh, it's subject to variation because we can imagine a lot of different circumstances that the same process, it's going to be the same process. The same process can take place in a variety of different circumstances. So, let's look at part one. Purification of view. What is purification of view? It involves analytical knowledge of the mental and the physical. Now, if you were, if, if you are following a traditional path of practice, you will study and contemplate and try to understand as clearly as you can the ideas of nama and rupa. And Nama is a Pali word that means name. But it has come to mean not just the mental process of naming, but every mental process. So Nama, although literally means name, means anything that is mental. It means mentality in, in general. It means mentality in total. And Rupa 
Rupa literally means form, and by extension it means anything that can interact with the physical senses and give us knowledge of the shape, size, color, temperature, whatever else, taste, smell of something. So, form has come to mean everything that's physical <coughs> as opposed to everything that's mental. So, nama is the mental and rupa is the physical. But there's a very interesting thing here. And think about this if you haven't. The only way that you know of anything that is physical is because of the sensations that arise in your consciousness. <coughs> right? You have never in your life actually experienced an object that was hard or hot or soft or cold or salty or anything else. All you have experienced are sensations of hardness, visual sensations of color and shape and so forth. So, Rupa, in very pragmatic, very experiential terms, Rupa means sensation in the five physical senses. And your mind explains those cessations, sensations by creating a hypothetical world of objects that can produce those sensations. And you think about it just a little bit more, this very body is part of the material world. And we only believe we have a body because my eyes can see my hands, my one hand can feel the other. But still, it's nothing but sensations, visual sensations, tactile sensations. I can clap my hands, I've got auditory sensations. Mm -hmm. But my body itself is just how the mind has explained a certain category of the sensations I experience. The nama is mind. Rupa, in practical terms, is sensation. So, somebody following a traditional path would study Nama and Rupa. They would study the five aggregates. Uh, somewhere I have a slide of the five aggregates. No, I don't. That's in a different slide set that I didn't put on there. <laughs> I'll get rid of this eventually. <laughs> the five aggregates are listed in your handout, in parentheses. <coughs> Yeah. Oh, there, here they are. Here they are, they're in parentheses right there. Sensations, that's the Rupa aspect. The rest of these, where's my, there it is. The rest of these, feelings, perceptions, mental constructs, and consciousness, that's all the Nama aspect. That's all the mental. And what the five aggregates are doing is they're saying, this is what you consist of. This is what an individual person consists of. In terms, you know, you are a series of conscious experiences that have sensations and mental objects uh, that they are. Con you have consciousness of sensations and mental objects, and the mental objects 
one type of <coughs> mental object is feelings. Things are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. You're happy or unhappy, this feels good, or this doesn't feel good. Or some things feel neutral. Those are mental objects. You have perceptions. Whatever you think it is that you're looking at, or feeling, or hearing, that's a perception. That is, that is a kind of mental construct. Actually, this third category here, mental construct, includes perceptions and feelings. But for feelings and perceptions have been set apart because perceptions and feelings are both such dominant parts of our subjective experience. So in addition to sensations, we have these feelings and we have these perceptions of what things are. The category of mental constructs includes all the other things. Come on. There. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Holmes wants to disappear. Now it's gone again. Interesting. Hmm. Mental constructs include thoughts and ideas, <coughs> desires, aversions, hatred, all kinds of emotions, fear, anger, your intentions. When the intention, an intention is a mental construct. You become conscious of an intention to do something or not to do something. So these three feelings, perceptions, and mental construct. They encompass all of the different kinds of mental objects that you can be conscious of. And then the final category here is consciousness. So you consist of these five things. An interesting thing about consciousness, though, we think about consciousness as though it were kind of a standalone, right? But when, when this formulation of the five aggregates was laid out, the aggregate of consciousness is eye consciousness and ear consciousness and nose consciousness and so forth, and consciousness of mental objects. It's consciousness of sensations and consciousness of mental objects. Have you ever had an experience of consciousness without an object? There's a very interesting relationship there between consciousness and its object. They always appear together and they disappear together. That's the five aggregates. You would study the five aggregates in, in a traditional uh, process. Dependent origination, the next one. You would think about, you'd be asked to think about and contemplate the fact that everything is a result of causes and conditions. There is nothing that's not the result of causes and conditions. You'd be challenged to try to find anything you can think of that you really know exists. It's not just purely imaginary. That is not the result of causes and conditions. Furthermore, everything that comes into existence as a result of causes and conditions also passes away due to causes and conditions. So this is causality in general. Well, no, there's more to it than that. We normally think that A causes B. We think of A as the cause of B. But if you think about it carefully, you realize that it's not just A that's the cause of B. 
There's a whole bunch of other things that are also the cause of being. All kinds of, there are many causes and conditions for anything. And if you kept pursuing that, if you took a single event and kept, every time you thought of something else, that if it didn't happen or didn't exist, that B wouldn't happen, your list would keep getting longer and longer and longer. And you're asked to, you're actually asked to think about this and, and, and recognize that it's true. Now, ultimately, now none of you, you, you couldn't actually sit down and do this. But by extrapolation, if you do this for a little while, you'll realize that to have a completely accurate list, it's going to include absolutely everything in the universe. <laughs> so, this, this, is, this, is, this is an insight talent. We're used to, we usually think of a kind of linear causality and we're willing to entertain the possibility that something might have two or three causes or maybe even a dozen. But the idea that everything is the cause of everything, that's a new idea. Right? But that's, that's what dependent origination is about. Then another part of dependent origination that you would study traditionally is the links uh, of dependent origination, which is that if you are a conscious being with a body and mind, and you have these sense organs that things make contact with the sense organs and you become conscious of them. And when that happens, there is some feeling of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that arises. And when that feeling arises, there's some desire and aversion. Desire or aversion arises in response to it. And then whenever desire or aversion arises in your mind, your mind organizes the information around a self and an object and a potential action for you to either hold on to or get more of what was pleasant or get rid of what was unpleasant. And whenever, whenever your mind makes that reality of here's the object that's either causing me pleasure or pain and here's the self that's experiencing the pleasure and the pain, then it leads to it leads to action, it leads to a kind of becoming. You, you, you become in your own mind this kind of being who is motivated by this particular desire to carry out these actions and obtain these results. And so dependent, the studying the links of dependent origination means taking the time to contemplate how this actually occurs and, that, and the fact that it's constantly occurring all the time. Then the rest of these things, the six sense bases, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, coming, that's the, that's the links of uh, dependent origination. Uh, the 18 elements, you're invited to study what the 18 elements are, the six kinds of sense objects, you know, auditory, visual, mental, and so forth. The sense organs and the six consciousnesses and the interesting thing about that when you contemplate them is that you come to the realization that well, all there really is is the consciousnesses of the sensations. The sense organs are hypothetical and the sense objects are hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> the four elements. Um, another important part of this is reflecting on 
the twofold division into mental and physical in a variety of ways. You see, one of the things that stands in the way of us seeing the way things really are is that we have we have too complicated a view of things. Oh, that, there's so many things. A world full of things, an infinite number of things. My head, my head's full of an infinite number of things, right? But we can simplify it, and you come down to the point of saying, ah, there really are only two kinds of things, the mental and the physical, uh, or the mental and sensations. And so when you reduce things in this way, uh, and you learn to see things in this way, it allows you to see far more clearly. You know, you know why you can... You can now see the forest because you're no longer distracted by the trees. You're further invited to reflect on the fact that in your own personal experience, all of your mental states, good or bad, are derived from sensory experiences. It's very interesting. Any of you familiar with um, uh, Helen Keller? Read any of her? Do you know how she described herself before the kind woman taught her to communicate through touch on her hands? She described herself as unconscious. She described herself as living in a prison of unconsciousness, deprived of all kinds of communication and sensory input. So, but this is something to reflect on, that ultimately, all the contents of your mind, all of your thoughts and your ideas and your preferences and everything else, derive ultimately from sensation. So that's something to think about. Yeah, finally, reflecting on your own personal experiences of consciousness and the objects of consciousness, is to realize that when you are hearing something, there is only the hearing. When you're seeing something, there's only the seeing. When you're thinking, there's only the thinking. There is no self in that. The seer, the hearer, the thinker is something that's added on by the mind at a different time. And the actual time of the hearing. The hearing has to be interrupted and the idea of a hearer interjected in the process of the hearing. Okay, so these, these, this is the analytical knowledge that sets the ground for you to change analytical knowledge into insight knowledge through direct experience. So you with me on this? So, these are all things that you can think about and understand. You might not necessarily be convinced of. You might have some doubts about them. But at least you reach the point where you understand the idea. You understand what the Buddha was trying to say. You see the point that he was trying to make. You're not necessarily totally convinced. Or maybe you are. Maybe you're totally convinced. Intellectually. But even though you're totally convinced intellectually, your intuitive response to the world is not as though you understood these things. Okay? So that brings us then to the purification by overcoming doubt.
So the whole purpose of studying all these things is to set your mind up. In essence, if you've taken this seriously, what you've done is you've created for yourself a potential for insight. Now you sit down to meditate, and meditation is going to give you the stability of attention and the awareness that you need to test these ideas and see if they're actually true through direct experience. And you will find in your meditation that they are. And then what you need to do is to keep noticing these things until that insight and until that insight becomes well established in your mind. So that now this is the way that you think about things. Yeah. Question. So how much of that is kind of programming yourself to see things in a certain way? Well, you can answer that for me, okay? Take the most the, the strongest devil's advocate point of view that you can and can you find a, a viable description that is in opposition to the idea that everything that you know everything that you're conscious of is either a mental object or a physical object That's actually what you're. That's that's what you're supposed to do in the in the analytical stage is to try to think if you can come up with anything like anything other than that. The same thing with the five aggregate. You're challenged to really think about it and say, is there anything about me as an individual and my subjective experience that is not encompassed by these five categories? So. Uh, I'd have to say it is a kind of programming, but it's a programming that is based on how we actually uh, experience reality. Um, and in, in that sense, the important issue is not that it is a programming, but it is a much, it's going to turn out to be a much more useful program than what we started out with before we started thinking about these things. Because the programming you already started with wasn't allowing you to see, have insights that you're looking for. But this is going to allow you to, to have those insights. Okay? So this is a really good time, I think, to do a, a kind of guided meditation. And I'll just point these things out to you while you're meditating so that you can see how in your meditation these can become solidified and well established as true insight. Go ahead and, and stretch, do whatever you need to do. I'll give you a couple of minutes to get comfortable here. Thank <laughs> you.
<laughs> it's inevitable at some point. <laughs> the image needed to stretch in there. Yeah. <laughs> it had been still for too long. <laughs> by discerning conditionality, weird thing, but uh, it is what you're going to be looking at, the <coughs> conditional relationships. <between. coughs> Close your eyes, adjust yourself comfortably, and just for a moment or two, direct your attention outward to all of the various sensations that are coming into your body through the senses. Sounds. Temperature, touch and pressure. <coughs> They're quite likely some thoughts or perhaps feelings that are also a part of this experience. So notice them and distinguish them from the sensations themselves. example, if the movement of the air on your skin is pleasant, then just label that feeling. That's a mental object. There's the sensation, and then there's the pleasantness.
direct your attention to the sound of the air conditioning and the traffic outside. Notice the mental activity of hearing is taking place. Now let's say goodbye to those external sensations and just focus your attention on the sensations in your body itself. was an intentional movement. I want you to do that again and this time you just put your put your attention on external sounds and then whenever you decide, whenever the intention arises as a mental object, then allow your mind to make the movement, redirect your attention to the sensations in your body. Refocus your attention specifically on sensations caused by the breath, whether in your abdomen, your chest, your nose, or all three. And let everything else, sounds and other body sensations, slip into the background of awareness. Continue to be aware of them. Attention is focused on sensations of the breath.
Try to keep track of the different things that you are conscious of. Conscious of sounds in the background. Every now and then attention goes to one of those sounds. Conscious of sensations other than the breath in the background. Likewise, attention sometimes goes to those. And notice also different mental objects that come and go. Sometimes fleetingly, but sometimes for long. I think you'll find there's a lot of things coming and going in peripheral awareness. So now what I want you to do is refocus your attention to just on the sensations of the breath of the nose. Let everything come and go in awareness as it will. But what I want you to do is to very carefully monitor the activity of attention. Objects, different kinds of objects of attention that may come and go while you're trying to keep your attention on the sensations of the breath of the nose. So your intention is to focus on, is to observe the sensations of the breath of the nose. But your purpose is to notice any time 
the object of attention changes. And notice what it is. No matter how momentary, notice whenever the object of attention changes. You might want to label that. You can label it as either mental or sensation, or more simply as nama or rupa.
sensations cause the mind to move and they cause mental objects to arise. Shift your attention to your left elbow. Probably weren't aware of those sensations a few minutes ago. <coughs> and now bring your attention back to your nose. If you're having an experience of sensations and mental objects arising and passing away, does this not define who you are for the past 10 minutes or so? With your eyes closed and your attention focused to make things a little more obvious, has not your existence consisted of being consciously aware of mental objects and physical objects arising and passing away one after another. You are a series of conscious experiences. is inference, everything else is projection of your mind. Mental activities and sensations interact. Sensations trigger mental activities. Mental activities play a major role in determining what sensations you experience. If you have the intention to raise your arm right now and allow that intention to unfold, you will have the experience, the feeling of your arm rising. 
it's just a series of sensations. the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose as closely as you can for just a few seconds, just as closely and intensely as you can. Okay, start now. meditation experience with a little bit of guidance that becomes filled with insight opportunities and it becomes insight when it no longer depends on any kind of thinking or reasoning or remembering how would it become insight well if you keep noticing that your existence consists of being conscious of physical, of, of sensations from the physical sense, sense of, of mental object, and that these two are doing advance with each other. And that the idea of you is just part of that dance. That's one of the mental objects. It gets thrown in every now and then, kind of like some seasoning or so, some spice. So the point is that your meditation experience is direct experience that is confirming these words, these ideas. But did it, did it work <coughs> for you? Did it do that for you? Can you see that? Didn't work, didn't work for you? The predominant experience is uh, someone trying to do it. So, is that a mental object or a sensation? It's a mental object. Okay. So. Not a mental object that I'm consciously aware of. Was that the. What do you, it, it, it's not a mental object that you're oh. consciously aware of? I don't. I can see that retrospectively. Yeah. 
So what were you consciously aware of? Just frequent dullness, distraction, you know, shit. Yeah. What was the distractions? Just various things popping into the mind. Yeah, the mental logic. So I mean, that's that's the point. While you sat there, you were conscious of sometimes of sensations, sometimes of mental states. Dullness is a mental state. Dullness is mental, right? That's that's what I mean. But it, it's noticing what's really happening is that I'm just I'm just having a series of conscious experiences, and it doesn't really matter what the conscious experiences are for the sake of insight. It doesn't really matter that some of it's dullness. It doesn't really matter that some of it's distraction. It's recognizing that the totality of my existence for this five minutes is just one kind of mental object or sensation after another arising and passing away. So it doesn't really matter that, if like, the flavor of the experience is like, oh, I can't identify the objects that are going by. Well, yeah, you don't, you know, I, I suggested you might label them, yeah. Nama and Rupa, but there's a good chance that you'll even find that they change too quickly. Sometimes they change too quickly to even label them, and that's all right. You just, and you don't even need to notice which they are, because which they are isn't important. Once you reach the point where, you, where you're satisfied that they're either going to be Nama or Rupa, then there's no need to identify which they are anymore. And then you just notice the change. Notice that, yep, 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 one thing after another. What you're after is the realization that I'm carrying around a whole lot of mental baggage about who and what I am and what reality is, and it's really much simpler than that. You could be a, a, a brain in a vat having these sensations fed in from somewhere else. You know, by you, you could be like uh, uh, what was his name in the <laughs> Matrix? Neo. 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 Yeah, you'd be Neo in the Matrix. You know, floating around in this little uh, pod, being being fed by computer. But whatever whatever it is you you are outside of that, the only thing that you know for certain is that you are a series of conscious experiences. Both the physical world outside and the unconscious mind that makes, makes thoughts and ideas pop into the mind, these are things that we only know from inference. Projection. Yes? That includes um, visual imagery memory when they come. Well, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time when I stay in that process of sensation shifting and being there, uh, I can recognize that. It's not a distraction. It is um, I still stay in that space of rest and awareness at mm -hmm. the moment. Is it still a distraction though? Well, distraction is a word we use, it's a label we use. If you have the intention to pay attention to one thing, and the intention to pay attention to sensations of the breath. 
then anything that competes for your attention is a distraction. The distraction is just a label that we put on it. If we remove the intention to observe one thing, mm -hmm. then there's no such thing as a distraction. There's just object. But isn't the idea at the end to have both, to have that focus and the, the global vision? Well, about? the idea is to is to train attention so that it becomes more stable and therefore more usable. Uh, you see, once once your attention is not going to get captured and carried all over the place, then you don't really need a specific meditation object anymore. Mm -hmm. You can go ahead and just let attention move as it will or let things arise and pass away in attention. But and, until until you developed a lot of skill, if you try to do that, something's going to capture your attention and it's going to be gone. You're going to forget completely what it is that you're doing. The other thing about, I don't know if you, if this registered, but it can register next time you meditate and, and in reflection, is that you're knowing things in two different ways. You're knowing things through attention and you're knowing things through peripheral awareness. And I encourage you to observe the change that's occurring in attention. Because attention, it's a kind of a single, limited process. And it's much easier to see the things arising and passing away in attention, mental objects and sensations. But what you'll notice, what will become clear uh, as you continue to practice, is that the same thing's true of peripheral awareness things are continually arising and passing away in peripheral awareness. And they may not be quite the same things as are arising and passing away in attention, but they're, they're either mental objects or sensations. There's nothing else. The totality of your consciousness, including both attention and peripheral awareness, falls into exactly the same description. You are a series of conscious experiences, whether they're experiences of peripheral awareness or attention, arising and passing away, and there are no, no, there's no objects other than the mental and the sensations, and that they are interconnected, that they're interrelated. So it's, it feels like there's a big distinction between being lost in a daydream and being aware of a mental object arising. I don't really understand what that difference is, but the difference between watched being lost in or being lost lost in a in an arising, so you didn't even know it was happening, and watching it arise. And I don't really understand what the difference is because yes, there's they're both mental objects, but one you are not observing it really, and another you are, and it seems like we want that difference, mm -hmm. but well. Yeah, we want that, that. We do. We want that difference. We want that added dimension of awareness. And um, in order to carry out some purposeful discovery, we have to have that. When we're lost, our what we are perceiving is very limited, and we're not perceiving in a way that's going to lead to insight. What is that extra dimension? What is it? Yeah. Well, <coughs> it's mostly to do with awareness 
it's it's a kind of introspective awareness. When you truly get lost in thought, you lose even peripheral awareness of sounds and body sensation. So what happens is attention expands and peripheral awareness disappears. So, I mean, that's why I'm always telling you, you've got to develop awareness and attention together. Uh, and that's what makes you get lost, is you lose awareness. What would you say, uh, pay attention to the tip of your nose, where exactly do you um, attend? Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, for some, it could be your upper lip. For some, it's just the skin at the opening of the nostrils. For some, it's inside the nasal passages. It's wherever you can feel the sensations clearly enough and distinctly enough that it's easy to make it a focus of attention. You know, sort of like if I said, look at one of those trees out there. Well, we'd pick different trees, but we'd pick whatever tree was easiest for us to focus our attention on. And that's what I mean. And just find some place where the movement of the air in and out is clear enough that you can use it as a consistent object. And it doesn't matter how big it is. It could be the size of a pencil eraser, it could be the size of a half dollar. Uh, the place you feel the in-breath could be, you know, a centimeter away from where you feel the out-breath. That doesn't matter either. Yeah. Can you talk about the question? about insight and the role of kind of cognition in insight. I noticed that, um, like in this last meditation, there was a moment that seemed like kind of a, a momentary insight moment. Um, and it was, it was pretty clearly set up by certain thoughts and consciousness, certain ideas, that then felt like just clicked in a certain way or got like a piece that like brought them all together. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, there was a moment of like, huh? And then there was a moment where it seemed like my mind created a model, mm -hmm. kind of created a new model to describe the situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so sometimes I also, so part of me thinks like, oh, okay, that's the process based on what you were saying last night. And then I don't know if this is just a wrong perception, but part of me thinks like, there's too much thinking going on. That can't be, I'm blocking it or, you know, kind of like relative to my earlier question, am I getting in the way of myself because I'm adding all this extra thinking or was it really insight because it was really just a more cognitive thing? Yeah. Uh, a, a little bit of thinking is okay, but, you know, you, you want to, to limit it. And the really <coughs> important thing is that, you know, as, as it becomes insight, there's no need to think. There's just absolutely no need to think when you're when when the insight is present. You can think about the insight, and you can think about the process, and you can think about the significance of it, and you can think about how it makes you feel. <laughs> but the insight itself requires no no thinking. It's just uh, it's, it's it's an understanding. And so, what? The idea is is that if you sit down to meditate with the idea that, okay, the, even though it doesn't seem to me this way, my reality consists of a series of conscious experiences, then you don't need to chase after that. You just need to sit down and meditate with that idea in mind, and the understanding is going to emerge. But yeah, well, that's that's right. That's all it is. That's all I am. 
and there won't be any more doubt anymore. And that's why this is called overcoming doubt. Do you realize that that's true? The same thing with you know the idea that there isn't anything but the mental and physical. Well, that's a pretty obvious one. I mean that that comes pretty quickly. Uh, the way that the two interact, uh, we tend to separate them in our mind. But if you if you contemplate the fact when you're not meditating that sensations cause mental events and mental events cause mental events have a direct effect on the sensations that you experience. You know, I decide to turn my head and all of a sudden I see things that were not there before. They appear, those sensations appear. If you contemplate that and you're clear that, then when you sit down to meditate, the, the experience is going to be repeating itself over and over again. That there is this dance taking place between mental objects and sensations. And your doubt about that is going to disappear. It's going to be, yeah, ah, yes, that's the way it is. And then, then you experience insight. Well, the, the one that takes a little longer only because we're so much more strongly attached to the opposing view. The things I just mentioned, it's easy to, it's pretty easy to give up the other view and accept the different view of things. Harder is the view that there's nobody there when the seeing is occurring, or the hearing is occurring, or the thinking is occurring, or the feeling is occurring. Because we're pretty attached to the idea that somebody is there. So it takes a little more looking. You know, I, I said, look look really closely, and then after you've looked closely, reflect back, was there anybody there, or was there just the experiencing? You know, and your mind says, well, of course I was there. But when you actually reflect on it, and then if you do it again, what your introspective peripheral awareness, while it's keeping an eye on the process, will tell you, no, all that's happening is a attention to the sensations of the breath. This idea of somebody who's doing it is being added on afterwards. Even more than that, does the breath really exist? Does your nose really exist? Well, they might or they might not pretty good chance they don't exist in the way you think they are. But in terms of your actual experience, when you have your eyes closed and you're following the sensations of breath at the nose, there is no breath and there is no nose. That's something that your mind is adding in, exactly the same way it adds in the watcher. It adds, in, it adds a self and it adds a world to a process that in itself is far simpler. That's challenging. <laughs> and you and if you didn't already have some idea of where this led, you'd say, Wow, why would I want to go there? <laughs> the reason you want to go there is because it's actually more true than what you're normally seeing, and as you get closer to the truth, is it it's going to have a lot of benefits. Yes. It seems to me that I've heard you sometimes say that um, that the mental originates in the in the sensation. Yes. Um, and that's something that I cannot. I've tried to observe and I can't. I see that there's a back and forth, but that all the mental, you know. For instance, today I've come here today with a particular concern that keeps keeps coming back and back yeah, and back right. and back and back. 
And as I was meditating, I was trying to see, is there, um, are sensations bringing this up? Okay. But I wasn't able to. There's a little bit of this. I'm not saying that right now, a mental object that arises in your mind right now is a result of some sensation that's occurring right now. Okay. I'm saying that if you go back to the history of it, okay. you know, we, we weren't born with a mind full of concepts. We had, those were all created, and those were all created as a result of sensations. So the mental objects you have to now, have right now, who knows how far their history goes back, but to some extent their history goes right back to before your birth, the time of the world. But if you do examine right now, like that's, that's a hypothetical idea, that's a theoretical idea. You can say, okay, yeah, I see what he's saying. Maybe I believe it, maybe I don't, who knows, right? But if you observe, you see, you want to turn the projector on again? These, these are the, is it on? I'll take a few seconds. Oh, okay, it has to warm up. Mm-hmm. I'll see if I can make it give me a cursor. <laughs> there you go. So this is a list of, a a, a verbal list trying to describe the insights that come with this. This is the knowledge by discerning conditionality. This is the purification by overcoming doubt. This is the understanding through direct experience of the ideas that we talked about earlier as part of the analytical knowledge. And this last one here is that this is true now, has always been, always has been and always will be. You see, if you observe now how sensations trigger mental activity and how mental activity is dependent upon, modified by, directed by, how it responds to, in a causal way, sensation. And if you continue to observe all the different varieties that that takes, you know, all, of that, all the different forms that it takes, all the different varieties in which it happens, then first you'll have the insight that, well, yes, what's happening in my mind is certainly dependent, is certainly being influenced by sensation. But as you see it in all of its different forms, you'll start to have the insight that, wow, this has always been happening this way. And so, if we go back to the time of my birth, all the ideas and the concepts and the patterns of emotional reaction and of behavior and everything else have actually been built up in the mind, but in response to sensation. So, and, and so that's a separate insight. That it's true, that what is true now always has been and always will be, is a separate insight from the insights you have about what's actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. And I think the battery has given up. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. My lunch will probably be in, but we'll have new batteries for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what, I'm, what is it I'm trying to convey here is that those things that you understand theoretically can be confirmed through direct experience in meditation. Did you have the experience of, 
uh, now of thinking to yourself, well, I didn't know that these things that were happening were trying to teach me the Dharma. <laughs> Anybody have that thought? <laughs> yeah, you had that thought. See, that's, that's what I want to get across, is that these, these things, as direct experience, when they go from being just theoretical, just ideas, to being realities that you know with a certainty, then that's insight. That's the purification by overcoming doubt. That's uh, the uh, knowledge by discerning conditionality. Uh, we're going to take a break for lunch, and after lunch, we'll look at the other aspect of this purification of doubt. And I don't know why it was organized in this play in this particular way. You see, first we had knowledge by analysis followed by uh, changing that into insight through direct experience. Mm -hmm. Now, in this thing called knowledge by comprehension by groups, we're going to do exactly the same thing. We're going to come to an understanding through analysis and of, of different things, of something different. But we're going to come to an understanding through analysis. And then the idea is that when you meditate, you're going to discover through direct experience that indeed this is true and it's going to take the form of insight. Understanding. Okay?